Yeah, well, thank you, Franz, for the kind introduction. Thank you, Barbara, for having um, us here tonight. The organization of um, workshop format that I think is a kind of first time for at least me on the panel. I'm not sure if the others already have been involved in um, discussing openly, frankly, in front of a sophisticated audience on a topic that is somehow difficult to grasp, difficult for a number of reasons. The first one I would say is we are talking about something that's going to happen in the future. The second one is, even though this thing is going to happen in the future, it already has lasted for a long period of time. It has a very rich historical body. There's a lot that has been already happening. It's happening right, right on now. And how to make meaningful connections between past events and experiences future outcomes is something that is perhaps not necessarily a central craft of what social scientists are educated for. Maybe that's more for profits and uh, that kind of trade. Another issue is, and that's perhaps for me personally, as Franz said, I've been involved in a number of book projects, research projects you know, related to sports in Japan for maybe 20 years by now, more than 20 years. Hmm? And part of the reason why I shifted interest is, of course, the interest in further development. Another issue then why I didn't get absolutely excited about Tokyo hosting the Olympics is a 10-year record of looking into the sociology of sport mega events. And it turned out to be extremely difficult to find out something that is promising to be different. Different this time in the instance how the Olympics are used to tell a story about itself, about the place where it takes, is taking place, about the way how this place is situated in relation to other places and countries in the world, how it actually is run, organized, how it's managed. These seem to be, to me at least, until very recently, something like old story, old shoe, we have known that before we have come so far. But that's something that might be equally contested, like my mild disinterest, and my disinterest has changed to a very deep interest, and that's not least due to the collaboration with the German Institute of Japanese Studies, that it's going to produce some kind of um, background uh, information publication on uh, Japan in the year 2020 and beyond, and what the Olympics are going to tell about this future trajectory. So be prepared more to come in the future. But being here, having the opportunity of talking with colleagues about their assessment of the sports mega event, the Olympic Games, the Tokyo Olympics and the future of what's going to stay behind them is uh, the major cause of us having come here together. And so I'm particularly um, happy to welcome here, in alphabetic order, Professor Harada Munehiko, uh, whom I've known for 13 years. We just figured that out, so quite a long time ago. And Professor John Horn, um, with whom I have a kind of publication record stretching back for even more something like 2002. That would be 16 years. Hmm? So uh, to give you a kind of information about the, the perspective and the background of our discussions today, uh, just a few words about Harada Munihiku, who is uh, the, probably the leading represent 
quantitative of sport management studies in Japan, particularly also because of his long-term relationship with the outside world, of outside of Japan. He achieved his PhD at the Pennsylvania State University. He was a Fulbright senior researcher at Texas A&M University. His English is brilliant, and he's been around in a number of international organizations. Before uh, picking up his current position at Waseda University, where he's chairing the um, sport marketing, sport marketing uh, department, he, is, uh, he had positions with the National Institute of Sport and Fitness in Kanoya, in uh, Kagoshima. He was professor at the Os Osaka University of Health and Sport Sciences. So he's also very active in the connection between sport and tourism as the chairman of the Japan Sport Tourism Alliance, and he was also the president of the Japanese Association for Sport Management. He is the author of the, a number of books, among them the leading textbook no, for any student who is enrolled in sport management at a Japanese university no, uh, called Understanding the Sports Industry. So, um, coming to our next speaker, a uh, very recent new hire at Vasile University. He just joined the ranks of the professors at the Graduate School of Sports Science at Vasile University in September only. Professor Hong has been a professor at the University of Central Lancashire, and he has held positions as a senior lecturer and, uh, in, at, at uh, the University of Edinburgh for quite a long time. No? So, no? And over the years, no, his research interests, no, besides being very close to Japan and having a very personal uh, aff affiliation with this country and the nation, and also a professional interest in how professional sport, how professional football became institutionalized in the country, uh, a mere 25 years ago. His research includes also uh, sports mega events in general, the relationship of sport, media and society, sport and globalization, and sport and social movements. He's the author of a lot of, of great many books and articles on topics associated with today's topics, among them also the best-selling um, Routledge books of understanding the Olympics, a book that came out first time, I think, in 2011 or 2012, around the Olympic, London Olympics, and it's now in its third or fourth um, edition. And uh, one of the um, co-edited publications we had uh, in which all, to which also Professor Harada contributed and it still belongs to one of the most cited publications on my side and I'm pretty sure it's perhaps also one of your best cited papers, the introduction to the sociology of sports uh, mega events. All right, now making the linkage between sports sociology, critical sociology, sports marketing, management, and the topic of today. Well, let's start with looking a little bit at the historical background of a smashing career. I'm talking about the Olympic Games becoming the realization or the, the, best, um, the best example of uh, a process, globalization, that has changed the world fundamentally over the course of the 20th century. And the question then is, now, 
if you are familiar with the history of the Olympic Games, and I'm not talking about centuries of Olympics that were held in uh, Greece, uh, in ancient Greece, or later on continued by the Roman empires. For many centuries, there has been a format that was re-detected then in the late 19th century by a Greek patriot that was using the Olympics as a reference to a time when Greeks, Greece was great and to celebrate the separation from uh, Turkish dominion, he had this idea of reinvigorating the Olympic Games. But it took another decade or so until a French aristocrat actually you know, became involved into re-establishing the Olympic Games at a time when uh, Europe was having its problem with its own um, uh, experience of modernity and nationalism, modern wars, and as a means to overcome these uh, ruptures between the European nations. Sports, sports events seem to be a proper way of um, yeah, well, celebrating patriotism as an acceptable way of collective identity, to celebrate manliness as an alternative from the warrior to the chevalier. And uh, he also developed a certain ideology. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the existence of something that's called Olympism as a philosophy that was developed at a time when the world actually was trying to become more aware of its commonalities than of its differences. So when in the 19th century a lot of universal philosophies or social ideas were developed, uh, talking about socialism, for example, humanitarianism, also Olympism was added to what later on then turned into <coughs> Uh, sport event. I'm not sure if you're also familiar with the early history, the early 20th century history of the Olympic Games, uh, which you sometimes had rather bizarre combinations of um, events at which athletic and artist uh, aesthetics were competing for gold medals, or at those particular events at which tribal sports were on display, also for Olympic honor, and then the way how already in the early 20th century national governments were kind of using the games for the purpose of re-nationalization. So already in the early 20th century you see certain courses of the popularity of the Olympic Games emanating at a different level. A substitute for war, the collective experience of something bigger than oneself, or also, as our colleague, a sociologist, Maurice Roche, said, the decompression of time, giving order to a time in a four-year circle no? in which you find fixtures for collective memories, putting people across generations together in a community of shared uh, memory. But now, um, John, from your perspective, no? what will you say? No? What actually are the reasons why did the Olympic Games became the greatest cultural show of the world. What has happened since, well, the mid-20th century? Thank you for that potted history. Uh, I, I'm not going to talk about the next hundred years, but um, um, 
I think I just want to make a few points about the Olympic Games, Olympism, and in particular the International Olympic Committee, which is the the organizer. Um, as you said quite rightly, there it was founded at the late uh, in the late nineteenth um, century, and the first games took place in eighteen ninety six. And um, the interesting thing was that the 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 organization, the IOC, was a composite model. It was fashioned out of ideas about um, the pursuit of physical culture in various forms that de Coubertin had, uh, Pierre de Coubertin had uh, identified in different parts of the world, but including England. Um, and um, the, the essential organization was fashioned on the principles that belonged to uh, essentially a gentleman's club in England. Uh, de Coubertin was much taken with um, a regatta, uh, a, a rowing event that took place in a, a town called Henley in uh, Oxfordshire. And in many ways, the IOC, I think even now, has to be remembered as essentially being a club, and essentially a club for quite uh, an elite group of people. There are many princes, uh, princesses, uh, various fo forms of royalty uh, who are members of the IOC, as well as other other people with more humble backgrounds. And what's happened in the course of the last 20, 30, 40 years is that the IOC and the, uh, the Olympics have become uh, a, a very well-recognized uh, global brand, the five-ring symbol, and essentially has had to deal with becoming an enterprise and uh, this is a very interesting development which a number of people have drawn attention to as, as both uh, enabling it to continue to exist but also creating certain um, conflicts, if not contradictions, in the way in which it goes about its uh, business. I'd just also just like to say that um, Wolfram just mentioned there that at, at the early days of the Olympic Games, the first uh, two or three, were held in conjunction with uh, World's Fairs, Paris 1900, um, uh, in, in uh, London in, in 1908. It was held in conjunction with a big exhibition of um, uh, 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 Anglo-French exhibition. Um, and this is the other, when, when people like Maurice Roach, who, whose name was just mentioned there, and myself to a certain extent, talk about mega events in sociological terms, we're really thinking about the sports events, the Olympics, Summer Olympics especially, uh, the Winter Games being slightly smaller and slightly less attractive in terms of all sorts of um, media um, and communications. Um, and obviously the Men's Football World Cup, the FIFA Men's Football World Cup. These two are the big sporting mega-events that we tend to refer to. But the other big mega-event that uh, uh, Roche certainly used to talk about when he was writing about mega-events were expositions, world expos. And um, it's quite interesting that the Olympic Games, in a sense, has grown out of being part nested within... Uh, these uh, the, these big expositions, and the the Olympic Games, of course, since the growth of uh, 
live transnational color television has become uh, such a popular event for a, s a very short period of time. Uh, some people suggest that Beijing in 2008 was watched was the was the was the most watched event that's ever happened in the world. Um, expos, uh, f uh, in contrast, hardly get any media coverage, but they're visited by very many more people. So Shanghai 2010, the the, the expos, the World Expo that took place in Shanghai in 2010 was visited by over six months that it was open, I think 70 million people, something like this. So there's an interesting set of contrasts here. But what, what makes the sports mega event in the Olympic Games especially attractive to an audience, I think, is that dimension of sport and potentially these days, of course, live sport. If you know, you're in the other side of the world, you may have to get up or stay up very late Get up, get up very early or stay up very late to watch something, but the attraction of watching uh, live um, competitive sport is what underpins uh, these events. So you already mentioned two keywords that probably I expected to come from Professor Harada. That was the brand value and the commercialization of the Olympic Games. Would that be your explanation of the success of the Olympic Games? Um, first of all, English is not my favorite language, but I do my best. And I'm not a historian, so I just want to talk about things uh, from the uh, sports marketer's point of view. The first of all, according to my friend, uh, uh, John Du Chapelet, he is a professor of the Lausanne University. He works a long time for the IOC. Uh, <coughs> he mentioned that um, if you show the five rings to everybody in the world, 94% of the human beings just automatically uh, recognize this is the Olympics. So this is the strongest brand and um, consists of three elements, friendship, uh, excellency, and respect. So the Olympics is the uh, world, uh, I say, uh, finest sporting brand, not only sporting brand, but cultural brand in the world. However, if you take a look at the history of the Olympic Games, I don't want to repeat what John said, but um, this is a survival of the fittest things. When uh, Olympic Games started back in 18, long time ago, right? <laughs> the Olympic was just like a ketchup of the hamburger, you know, just something beside the cultural, big cultural event or the expo. And since then, the Olympics grow and growing. But there's a lot of a competitor. You know, there's a lot of a other different sporting events all over the place, but Olympics survived. And so the privilege there they got right now was kind of the, the uh, they were awarded to the only one event, Olympic Games. So that's the reason why they get so much sponsoring money and uh, they get a lot of uh, the, the, the broadcasting fee, you know, so on and so forth. So that's a, my point of survival of fittest. There was only one. Uh, mega event survived. However, now here come soccer World Cup, rugby World Cup, all kind of you know, other events are trying to invade their property. So those kind of things are still going on. And if you think about the Winter Olympic Games, the number of candidate cities is going less and less and less. I helped 2026 Winter Olympic Games support city support. 
I was the chairman of the bid book, and uh, however, they decided not to go for the bid for 2026. Instead, they're going to for the 2030. Now, I was really upset which city is going for the bid. So, so the one thing, the Olympic movement is not steadily, you know, growing. It's just up and down like elevator. So, mm. that's my point of view mm. as a sport yeah. marketing, well, <laughs> sport marketers. The Olympic, the Winter Olympics are riding on on the train, on the same train. No? They're using the same brand. Mm? They have the same kind of message, but to some degree, they're attracting not the same kind of global attraction as the Winter Game, as the Summer Games. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a little bit of a um, of a missing gap, no? and probably that has something then more to do with the audiences or with the composition of audiences. No? Like uh, when you talk from a management point of view, or from marketing point of view, you also have to consider, take into consideration the psychology, the psyche of your customer, the clients. No? And the customers in that regard, now who are the, actually the customers? Who are the important audiences for running the Olympic Games? Well, as I told you, the 94% of human beings recognized five rings at Olympic Games. So, Interesting, Olympic can say uh, the customer is everybody. Like uh, if you are selling car, if you are selling some other goods, you have to target the market, right, and do a marketing thing. But Olympic, their target is everybody. That's very rare, you know. It's only Olympic can be allowed it to say so, mm. you know. So, mm. so customer is everybody, every single people in the world. Mm. And the sports beyond the race, sports beyond the uh, all kind of a mm. educational background. If you're talking about some artistic cultural event, you have to have a certain amount of uh, knowledge and experience. But sports, you don't need that. Oh, of course, you need that. But uh, you know, you automatically can know who is a winner and who is a loser. As, as far as you know the rule, you know, you can really enjoy the game. So sports is a very special product. For so it's. Easy to, to sell, yeah, it's easy, easy to, to sell. run, it's easy very to easy to sell. Uh -huh. Somehow everyone easy to buy. has to make a connection with that, which apparently not always has been the case. Now I can remember, John, when you started your career as a sports sociologist or as a lecturer, probably first of all you were starting from the sociology of work, coming to leisure to sport, at a time when perhaps sport did not have that kind of mass appeal that it was to be seen as neither an accepted study of academic research, nor as a commonly accepted field of interest for all social classes? Mm. Well, I guess, you know, as a sociologist, I would, I would dispute 94% people recognizing leads to 94% wanting to do anything about either jumping up and down, running around, or participating in sport. Um, that certainly isn't, isn't what happens. Um, there's also an interesting thing about the Winter Games, which I think really has to be, be said, which is, of course, uh, as, as some people who've done research on this have suggested, maybe it's a Games of the, the Global North rather than the Global South, and therefore it doesn't have the attraction of the, uh, the, summer, uh, the summer Games. It do certainly doesn't have so many events. It certainly doesn't have so many participants. It doesn't have such a broad um, television reach. Uh, in the same way that um, although it's been growing 
uh, in um, connection with the Olympics, the Games for the uh, for Paralympians, both winter and summer, uh, has a growing reach, has a growing television and media coverage, but uh, only in certain parts of the world. Um, the other thing as well to say about developments recently with regard to the IOC is, of course, they've got a third uh, sport, if you like, or sports event, which is called the Youth Olympic Games, which was recently just finished in Buenos Aires. And um, it's quite interesting the way in which the, the, the IOC have developed these, uh, not the Winter Games, the Winter Games has been going since the 1920s, but um, the Youth Olympic Games most recently is there. So it's a third, if you like, element in the way in which they uh, keep the word or keep the, the brand alive. The other thing, of course, about maintaining the brand awareness is that uh, in a year when there isn't an Olympic Games, and the Olympic Games, of course, now is between uh, a summer games in the... Um, uh, and then two years later, a winter games, and then another summer games, a four-year cycle. But the, mm. the game, the summer and winter games, take place at different times. Um, when there isn't a games taking place, there's usually a decision being made by the IOC. Remember this club of fairly affluent people about where a games in about seven years' time is going to be. So last year, of course, um, the decision was made uh, in 2017. The decision was made. Uh, historically, uh, uh, to um, and unprecedentedly, I should say, to award two games, uh, 2024 to Paris and 2028 to Los Angeles. Mm, but it seems that's also something like institutional learning. Mm, a similar process you have seen in the way how FIFA, the most significant competitor for world acknowledgement, mm, has branched out mm, into different events like the Men's World Cup and the Youth World Cup and the Under-16 um, events. And also the FIFA has been leading ahead, no? one step ahead, no? in giving away no? the Games of 2022, Qatar and uh, 18 and 18 no, in Russia in one package. Now we will talk about that a little bit later. But no matter whether it's 94% brand acknowledgement recognition or, or just 80% of the world population, whatever, there is something about the games that besides being a global event, it must be also localized. It's, it's locally rooted. It takes place at a certain area and therefore certain procurements are needed. So there is an allure of hosting the cities in the way how the bidding competition and um, the, the selection of candidates is organized. You may know that for Tokyo it's not the first time. Some of you are old enough to remember the Tokyo 1964 games and some of you even may remember that Tokyo was awarded the 1940 Olympic Games that due to uh, financial problems the city was a city that was gearing up for the Pacific War was no longer uh, being capable of fulfilling. So that included uh, three times. But even since then, since 1964, Japan uh, had applied at least three times for hosting the Summer Olympic Games. It was bidding for 1988, 
in the Nagoya Games that were eventually taking place in South Korea. And I think in 2008, Osaka was a candidate city that lost against another Asian contender, another Asian first-timer, Beijing, as you know. Tokyo is the second time in a row in um, the bid. So there is something about and. A question that I would have in general is, no, who's actually the driving force? Are these the cities? Is this Japan or China, Korea, national governments that are pushing a bit for hosting? Or are, are these the athletes' representations like national Olympic committees that are the driving force behind when putting a city into the place for applying for hosting? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very difficult question because every single city who wants to host Olympic Games is a different driving force, right? And uh, I helped the uh, uh, Osaka bid in 20, uh, 2008. And before we move into the bid phase, we very carefully uh, about the competitor. So we ask China, are you coming for the 2008? They say, no, we're not going to do it. <laughs> are you sure? Yes, we are sure. So we decided to go for it. But right after we go for it, you know, the China come and Beijing got the 2008. <laughs> the secret story. But uh, we are very careful about that. But uh, it didn't work. So anything could happen. So um, driving force. Uh, back in 1964, driving force for Tokyo was very different from what it is in 2020 because at that time, Japan was slowly recovering from the uh, World War II. So our GDP is very low, and uh, inbound tourist is only 130 million. No, 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 no. Only 130,000 people, or something like that. But Japan was at that time developing country. So there's a lot of reason why we have to uh, host Olympic Games. So we uh, set up the uh, bullet train, or Haneda Airport was internationalized, and there was an American base in the middle of the Tokyo, so we asked them to move to the outside of Tokyo. So that was very successful. So, but 2020, we, we need a different reason why we have to host Olympic Games. So, um, so Japan was now facing two big problems, aging and uh, depopulation. At the moment, we have 120 million people living in this country, but by 2050, the worst scenario say that our total population is going down to the 80 million, so just like that. And average, it just goes up, so we have a miserable future, actually. So we have to do something. So Olympic might be a good catalyst for uh, developing the uh, uh, this city. So that's a, a, one of the reasons why we go for the bid. Mm. And, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so, so far so good. You know, preparation is very good. So a lot of people support the Olympic Games. However, uh, now we have to be uh, facing the serious problem of the Olympic legacy. What's, what do we have to leave after the Olympic Games? So we are having a lot of a discussion. So now we are going to the different topics, so maybe I can tell you later. So. Sure, that will be on the agenda a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But can we continue about thinking about new courses and motives mm. of those mm. different mm. actors involved mm. in mm. rising a bit? Well, I, I, I will ask a question of Harada uh, Sensei uh, in a moment as well, because I was, I'd be interested to know why Osaka 
wanted to bid. Mm -hmm. Because my general kind of statement about this is that, you know, most academics, if you like, researching uh, Olympic bidding uh, processes nowadays at least talk about certainly for the last 20 30 years have been talking about the games are seen as a way of uh, um, or bid committees are interested in what they call le leveraging lever le le leveraging the games for economic growth and Oops. and development um, and there are much broader um, kind of academic debates about how this uh, has developed as part of urban policy and, and so on and so forth. And other people have talked about the pursuit of world-class status because one of the big attractions of hosting an Olympics is being able to say you hosted the Olympics um, because of the scarcity value of having those rings in your, um, in your city. Um, just to sort of take you at uh, face value here, I think this session is called Tokyo 2020 and Beyond. Um, last month I, was ro I wrote a little piece and towards the end um, I wrote a little article and towards the end I said, if I was writing this in September 2028, so let's just say October 2028, um, we could still say, um, only four cities have ever hosted the Summer Olympic Games three times. And only two cities have hosted the, Olympic, the Summer Olympic Games twice. And there have only ever been 34 officially recognised, and I'll explain that in a minute, officially recognised by the IOC Olympic Games. In other words... Virtually half of the Olympic Games that have ever taken place, the Summer Olympic Games that have ever taken place, have been hosted by just six cities. London, where I was born. Tokyo, where I'm now. And uh, uh, Los Angeles and Paris will be the cities that have hosted the Games three times come October 2028. Um, uh, Berlin is counted as officially as having had the Games twice, although, as we know, it only actually hosted the 1936 Olympics, but it was down to host the, 19, uh, the 1916 Olympic Games. And the club that I mentioned, the IOC, still officially recognises that in its numbering of Olympic Games as an event. It never took place. There was something else going on. First World War, I think we called it. Um, but... Um, uh, it's it still counted in official Olympic uh, cycle, and if you look at the numbering, so the Olympiad, as they call it, for Tokyo has got a particular number. I can't remember if it's 30 or 31, but that includes Berlin. And the other place, of course, is Athens, that hosted it in 1896 and in 2004. Poor Athens got so excited about celebrating the 10th anniversary of the, sorry, this is a bit of history. I'm into that sort of stuff. Uh, Athens was so excited about celebrating the, the hosting of the Games that in uh, 1906 they had an event, a multi-sport event, and I think that's an important qualification. That's what an Olympic Games is. It's a multi-sport event. And, um, but unfortunately, the IOC, the club, decided they weren't going to recognise it. So it's in lists. It's on 
you know, if you look up Wikipedia, it's in my book and all this. But it's called an inter intercalated games and not counted as an official one. Anyway, the point being the scarcity value of being able to claim you're an Olympic host. Of course, that means 17 other cities, as well as the six I mentioned at the beginning, have hosted the Olympics. But that's still uh, a, a real draw in an environment where putting yourself forward or trying to put yourself forward as world class, having certain attributes, not just as you just described, 1964, you know, the fantastic uh, transportation system, the international airports, being able to demonstrate this now to the world on television uh, is, is, is what, what's, what's the big attraction. Oh, for me, anyway, is the big allure of the Olympic Games. Yeah, well, thank you. <coughs> well, let's um, look into the bid. What is required, actually, no? to become a candidate city and even more what is required to become a successful candidate city. For 2020, for 2020, if I remember correctly, other Japanese sites that were in the discussion were Fukuoka and Hiroshima Nagasaki with the joint pit. Mm -hmm. yeah. That then lost against Tokyo. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what made Tokyo so much more? That was 2016. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what makes a candidate city successful in the national competition and ultimately in the international competition with cities from uh, other places of the world? Mm. Uh, back in 2016, uh, th we have to do a domestic bid. So JOC, Japan Olympic Committee, asked, uh, you know, all the cities, do you want to be an Olympic city candidate? So a couple of cities you just mentioned uh, wanted to be a host cities in Tokyo won. But 2016 was the first uh, experience since 1964. So there was no uh, knowledge and experience about Olympic bid. So uh, many people just told us that you have to go, you know, uh, don't quit. You have to keep uh, bidding, you know, many, many times. So, uh, so 2020 has been very successful because we had a lot of experience and knowledge and uh, human network, especially for the IOC members, so they automatic, automatically awarded the game to the Tokyo. To become a successful city, a candidate city, you have to have everything in first class. First class airport, first class hotel, first class uh, transportation system, maybe first class economic uh, situation, those kind of things. Then, however, the problem is uh, there's a time discrepancy between the year you are awarded the Olympic Games and the year you actually have Olympic Games. If you take a look at the real Olympic Games, uh, 20, when was the real Games? Two years ago, right? 2016. 2016. The game was awarded uh, 20, uh, 2009, seven years before the Games. At that time, the economic situation of Brazil was super. Everybody thought they can have a good Olympic game. But after seven years, when the opening ceremony in the Brazil, I mean, uh, Rio, the economy was worst in the Brazilian history. So there was a lot of uh, uh, problems. And uh, at the bid book, uh, they say, uh, we're going to take care of the, all the facilities and the venues, you know, after the games. So a lot of private company wanted to uh, operate that uh, facility. So their legacy plan was perfect. 
but uh, seven years after, all the private companies collapsed. So nobody can take care of the, all the venue and facilities. So it's, it's a disaster. So seven years is kind of a problem. So I'm saying to become a successful Olympic city, the economic stability is the number one priority for the future, I believe. Yeah. Well, economic stability as well as the economic wealth in order to provide all those first-class facilities, which probably also explains a little bit about the limited club of cities that have yes. been. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's, there's, I guess there are three things that I would say about the bid. Is one, uh, it's not a cheap thing to do. Uh, I How don't much know. is it? There, cheap? There, 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 bit, there are bit. various estimates that I've seen for Tokyo, but they run into the several, you know, the multi-million pound. I can't remember the exact figure for Tokyo, but um, we're talking here about um, advisors, uh, mm. the, uh, the, you know, the, the spin doctors, uh, the companies that, uh, you know, have got a proven track record in delivering uh, events. There's, uh, I just moved to a second one, which is persistence, I think, um, uh, of, of the city and the, 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 the people involved in the, the, uh, the uh, organizing committee or the bidding committee level. Um, Tokyo persisted. Pyeongchang persisted three times. They kept going back with uh, uh, three, three, three opportunities running. Um, and uh, if you think about Japan with the Osaka bid for 2008 as well. There, there is a history there of persistence. And then, as you say, uh, lastly, uh, back to my, the club. I didn't know I was going to see this as the theme, but the club. The, the IOC makes the decision. Nobody else makes the decision. There's 100 or so members. Some of them don't turn up. Some, <laughs> some of them are dead, and they still seem to be on the list. But anyway, some of them person are non grata. Uh, uh, such as the former secretary uh, of FIFA, who's a, uh, uh, an IOC member. But um, they make the decision, and uh, quite often this club will appear to make a decision based upon where, where, as you called it, first class, as I was describing it, as world-class facilities exist. Um, uh, in the 19, uh, 1980s, uh, there were bids that came from Britain uh, uh, one was for a city uh, in what's called the Midlands, called Birmingham, and then I think there were two bids um, for Manchester. And both or three times they fell very early on in the bidding process. And there was a, a famous statement, well, I say it's famous because I quote it, but there was a statement in a, in a, a newspaper in Britain that said it's quite clear that the only way... Uh, Britain's going to get the Olympic Games is if London puts itself forward. They weren't interested in going to Birmingham or Manchester, but London had, you know, this, 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 uh, the facilities that the, the members of the club were attracted to. So, again, there's a kind of a, a pull and push going on there. You've got the people wanting to put and persist, and you've also got to persuade the membership of the IOC. Yep. You were referring to the scarcity value, to the opportunity of being on the global stage to showcase national achievements and the technological development. So I guess there's a number of um, narratives, a number of official storylines that go with hosting a city. And you were also referring to spin doctors, people that are, well, 
involved ne, in making sure that the message is not distorted, the message is kind of a streamlined ne, and uh, this in, in a rigid dis discipline exercised by people inside the organization and also their most important collaborators on the side of the media ne, that are perhaps not always fulfilling their role of being uh, critical towards what's presented to them. But now let's look at the official messages. Ne? What is the message that Japan, what is the message that Tokyo probably are going to convey to the audience by being the whole city in 2020? <clears throat> um, yeah, message. 1964, the message is very clear. Recovery from the World War II and uh, building the, uh, uh, the very important infrastructure like a blood train in the new international airport. However, the message from 2020 is very different. Uh, the message is uh, how do we maintain those kind of uh, infrastructure? So maintenance is the number one priority. And secondly, um, As I told you, Japan facing a lot of problems. Now we have to solve the problems by using technology. So we like to use the 2020 as a showcase uh, of the uh, technology come from Japan or other countries. So uh, like, uh, do you remember that uh, Sydney was called uh, Green Olympic Games? They are very concerned with the environment, right? And London was called most connected Olympic Games. So SNS was just explored. And here come Tokyo. How do we call Tokyo? And I believe Tokyo can be called AI hmm. Olympic Games. I hope, you know. And people, yeah, you know, a lot of friends of mine just working for the technology aspect of the sports. So sport technology or sport innovation is a key word for the Olympic Games, not for the blood train, not for the international airport. Technology, invisible, but very important uh, element of the sports, I think. Hmm. I mean, I, I was just going to say, this sort of the general statements that I think co uh, contemporary hosts want to talk about, as I, I'm using this phrase again, world class, I think cosmopolitan, open for business, this is a phrase that kept resonating around London uh, before and during and after and since 2012. And uh, increasingly, of course, um, although it, it, it seems very strange to talk about this when you have places like Tokyo, London and so on, but to create um, spaces as flows for tourists, to become more of a tourist hub than previously. So I, I would add, 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 I had written down some thoughts about this before, and I thought cutting-edge technology would be one of the key motifs for Tokyo. But also I think there's, a, there's an attempt to try and present uh, Tokyo, certainly, and maybe Japan, as more diverse. I don't know if that's something that's coming through at all, but that seems to me to be uh, uh, something that's, that's happening. Of course, there are, uh, there are counter-narratives as well. And I came across... It ju just today, somebody uh, who, and again, it could be just one person, you know, who, who, who was in Fukuoka and didn't get the bid, uh, <laughs> saying that, oh, you know, it's Tokyo again, uh, it's the wrong time of year to have, you know, athletes uh, running around, we need a technological solution to some of the heat uh, that we're going to face, uh, there's going to be waste, the opportunity costs, which is a 
economist's phrase, which basically means you could have spent the money on something else uh, that, uh, that are going into this are, are massive. Um, and uh, I think, again, that's a phrase I've used. It's the title of a book, uh, The Ghost of the Tsunami, um, a, a book written by an English uh, journalist who's based here. Uh, I don't think he's in the room. Um, uh, he works for the Times of London, but he wrote a book which won a, an award this year, best uh, non-fiction uh, book, called The Ghost of the Tsunami, which, of course, is talking about 311, Fukushima. And, um, you know, that, uh, that seemed to come through, actually, in this blog being quite critical, saying, you know, the claim is that it's, it's a, 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 the games of Tokyo 2020 are seen as a symbol of reconstruction, but there's a lot of reconstruction that still needs going to be going on in Tohoku. Anyway, I thought I'd say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, this is n perhaps not the only counter-narrative no, that you can expect or that usually comes with uh, organizing uh, extravaganza like a two-week party mm, that is costing something like a staggering amount of some billion dollar, and then w w what's next? Mm? We have heard about Rio falling into a slump with a lot of... Um, problems in maintaining and maintenance now of the world-class facilities that are no longer world-class. And I think Beijing has had its similar experience, and I probably can say that London also didn't come up with all of these uh, expectations. We have another counter-narrative coming from critics saying the way the city is modernized and reorganized is not necessarily for building up communities. It's not benefiting the locals. It's more for either international tourism or it's for the expats, no, it's for the wealthy. So the gentrification of the city is uh, another byproduct no, that can legitimately claim no, when talking about being a host city. And for social-minded uh, aspects, no, the weakening of the weakest, no, the treatment of um, homeless people, the ex extraction of uh, from people from uh, cheap housing accommodations that are needed for reconstructing the city are other topics. I think a very significant issue for Japan would also be the unipolarization. So the very central position this Tokyo is having in the national economy and the national society in the way that a lot of investment is put into building the city, whereas the countryside, and I'm not just talking about post-disaster um, Tohoku, also other post-disaster areas and other areas that are just suffering from, well, population aging, no, from industrial decline, no, are probably also, well, crying for help no, to overcome their problems. Yesterday I read in the news that Russia host of the Football World Cup uh, this summer, uh, well, surprisingly claims a $14 billion US dollar windfall from the World Cup, no? saying that's the kind of uh, net gain they made no? from hosting a, a two, well, four week um, global event. Mm? Um, I, I don't want to comment you on that, no? but I simply would like to hear a little bit about the costs <laughs> of hosting the Olympic Games. No? It's a well-known story that we have underestimated costs mm. yeah, in the beginning and in the end then uh, uh, multiple amount of actual expenses. So just one, 
looking through the numbers in a historic perspective, I think the original bid came with a price tag of $3 billion. If I'm not correct, maybe it was even less than one to be economic games. But it has exploded to something that in December last year it was said to be about $12 billion, even though a number of changes have been made cost cutting changes in the course of some years. And now the most recent numbers from a week ago, or from two weeks ago, were kind of shocking in a way that on one hand, one party was claiming that Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee is very successful in cutting down further costs, so it's going to come closer to its, uh, well, coming, coming closer to its um, premise, promises. And on the other hand, the Japanese government auditorial committee and it came forward with saying that even the 25 billion dollar cost at which the current expenses are calculated might be a challenge to maintain in the course of the next two years. So that would make the Tokyo Olympics to be the most expensive Olympic Games ever hold. No. If you want yeah. AI, if you want AI, that's where you're going to have to So pay. how much does it cost hosting yeah. Olympic Games. Now, I mean, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, I studied economics many years ago, but I, I wouldn't call myself an economist. But essentially, this is, this is the classic, uh, you know, story about if you laid all the economists in the world end to end, you'd still not reach a conclusion because they have a different kind of view about this. And there are two polar opposites views here. There are those who say, and, and to a certain extent, and you can imagine why the IOC believes this is the way they prefer to see things, is that the games uh, break even. Um, basically, if you look at uh, ticket sales, sponsorship, broadcast revenues, for uh, most of the Olympic Games that have taken place in the last 40 years, they cover games time costs of accommodation, food, beverages, transport, and even some of the security costs. Now that's the way the IOC sees things and I, I was on a round table a little bit earlier this year and one of the IOC members was on it and he said something like this um, we try to tell hosts not to overspend but, they, but we cannot control what the host cities do. Um, <laughs> I'm not quoting him so um, the, 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 the other side of that, the response to that, which I'm not sure I remember to do at the time, was, of course, that in the contract that a city signed with the IOC, the government of the country has to agree to meet the costs. So if there is an overspend, the government has already... And, and the IOC won't sign the contract unless the government have also agreed to meet the costs. So... There, there are issues here. The, eco the economist debate goes like this, that some people say, well, that's the way it is, the, the, the games break even, and then other economists say, but you're forgetting about all the other things, the uh, capital expenditure that takes place to enable the games to take place, such as the transportation improvements, such as the additional security, such as uh, all those other things that... Um, Really, the, the games wouldn't, uh, couldn't take place properly without them, and you certainly wouldn't think of it as a world-class experience. And that is what's happening in Tokyo with the different uh, uh, 
numbers that I've heard recently, I've read about recently, that um, some uh, people are taking the, you know, the firm IOC line. We only, uh, it's only costing us what it does, what, what it takes to deliver the games uh, in games time, and those. Uh, who also are saying, but what about building the Olympic Village, building uh, the facilities, building special uh, places for Paralympic athletes, and so on and so forth? So, and the training for volunteers, for example, and and marketing as well. I think these costs end up not being included when the IOC does its calculation, and that's why you get people apparently completely talking at cross purposes. Some people. F- you know, firmly saying, well, the games have covered their costs, and others equally saying, um, but you've forgotten about all the other infrastructural changes that had to take place in order to enable the games to happen. At least that's how I see it. <laughs> um, talking about the cost, uh, it's it's uh, the reason why uh, the the cost just inflated is very simple. When the uh, bid phase, when we are uh, setting the bid book, the number of cost is smaller the better to get the support from the government or support from the people. You know, it's very cheap Olympic games. You know, so we just set up the small number. In Tokyo, we set up the 30 billion US dollars, right? However, the real cost is going to be a 300,000, so 10 times more. But that same thing happened in London mm-hmm. also, and. Um, so everything is just unpredictable. Uh, when we uh, successfully got the Olympic Games in 2013, right? Right after the uh, big earthquake and the tsunami things. So all the things, uh, all the resources has to be uh, used for the, uh, the recovery from the, the, the uh, natural disaster. So all the cost just goes up automatically after the uh, big uh, big earthquake and the tsunami things. So it's very unpredictable. And uh, one good news about Tokyo Games was that, 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 that North Korea was very quiet, so we don't need a lot of a patriot missile outside of the, the Tokyo city. <laughs> but Tokyo, you had a lo- uh, in London, you have a lot of a patriot missile to, uh, to avoid the uh, disaster. So what I'm saying is that things are very unpredictable. And uh, so what we have to do is, uh, you know, uh, is uh, the cutting the cost and uh, putting a lot of uh, advanced technology to uh, reduce the, uh, uh, the, the, the money we need for the Olympic Games. So that's what we're working right now. So with all the huge expenses no, waiting out there, no, I think this leads them to the final question we prepared here for our talk no, is about what's next, what's then, what comes after the games. No? So the Olympic legacies have become a prominent uh, keyword, maybe not only in academic discourse, not only among Olympic believers, but also in the media. Uh, le- the legacies of what is left behind no, has uh, gained quite a huge prominence. No? So what uh, what is behind the the rise of the prominence of Olympic legacies and 
in particular, what legacies are supposed to stay behind we, the we, Olympic Yeah, we learned a lot from the London Games. Uh, the London uh, left a very good legacy, like East London was redeveloped, and a lot of uh, commercial area has been very well successfully operated right now. And But uh, um, my point of view, as uh, uh, the research, research of the sport tourism, um, the biggest legacy the London left was tourism development. Uh, during the Olympic Games, a uh, number of people who visited uh, London from outside of uh, Great Britain was um, how many? 31 million people just visiting uh, UK. But uh, this year, the number goes up to 41 million. So between 2012 and now, the London uh, did a wonderful campaign and uh, uh, successfully has been successful uh, getting uh, people outside of the uh, United, uh, United Kingdom. So um, what I'm saying to uh, the people in Japan is that uh, London has been successful. That part of the reason was the sports, because London 2012 uh, tell people that London is very healthy and active and nice place to go. And after that, London uh, hosted um, Rugby World Cup 2015. Oh, before, you have a Commonwealth Games in 2014 and the Rugby World Cup and the World Athletic Event, Truck and Fuel Event in 2017. So the number of people who visit that sporting event is not a lot, very small. However, the, uh, uh, from the point of view of the city sales, the, those big sporting events has been very successful for attracting a lot of uh, uh, people from outside of uh, uh, the UK. And um, in Japan, if, uh, if we lose one people, one adult people, it's going to be a, a 1.2 million yen worth. I mean, we are losing 1.2 million consumption if we lose one people. However, if we bring eight foreign tourists to that place and they uh, spend just one night, you know, they spend money. Eight uh, inbound tourists cover the loss. So that, that's kind of a reason why we are now promoting the inbound tourism. And so far, so good. The number of inbound tourists just goes up just like a skyrocket. So what I'm saying is that after 2020, you know, if we can learn a good exercise done by the Great Britain, you know, we can just increase the inbound, number of inbound tourists up until 60 million people, just like Paris in France. So that's what we are targeting by 2030. Mm. Well, I mean, you mentioned before how Tokyo's budget was fairly low in the bid book, and then it trebled or quadrupled. Um, and London's uh, budget uh, and, and spend for 2012 did also go from about three billion uh, pounds to uh, nine, over nine billion pounds. Um, but that was claimed as within budget because the figures kept changing. So one starts to get a little bit, this is why the skeptics start to um, uh, emerge and say, but hold on a minute, it's three times the amount, but you're now saying you've achieved on budget. The other thing you might 
not want to take from London was the displacement effect, which is a well-known phenomenon, as you know, in tourism, which is that sports tourists tend to displace other tourists. And so within the city of London, within, not the city of London, but within London, many cultural um, institutions, museums, the British Museum and so on, uh, numbers were down by about 25 to 30% actually during the Olympics. So, and, and the same thing happens, I, I know, and you and I happened to be in Sydney together a few years ago, and we know that in Sydney something similar happened outside of the, um, the, the hotspots or, or honeypot areas where the Olympic uh, tourists were. Uh, other places were rather uh, uh, disappointed by, uh, you know, the, the, the local uh, businesses, restaurants, and so on were rather disappointed by the by the impact. So, I think needs to be careful. Se- uh, last thing about legacy, and and just again to do with London, the, the East End of London has been undergoing redevelopment for many decades in various ways, but the actual Olympic Park that that uh, uh, continues after after 2012 um, it's going to take uh, an, an, you know, 30 or 40 years for real developments to be perceived and I mean there are there are changes but it's a long long haul and this is one of the ways in which legacy has become a very popular uh, trope a very popular phrase that's been used because it can cover what appears to be a kind of almost instantaneous change, but it can also mean something very, very long-term, which people are not going to see in, in possibly in their lifetimes. And um, it's a novel conception. It's only been around and associated with mega-events and, and these large-scale um, sports events for the last 20 years. And it has to be... I think has to be perceived as uh, a, an idea that helps hold at bay the concerns that have been growing up about the, if you like, the waste and the, the, the sustainability of something like the Olympics. Now, I'm not here to say the Olympics should be ab- <laughs> abandoned. I don't think, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a, a, a sensible proposition the Olympics are going to carry on, but what they have got to juggle with is this concern that they are creating, in some cases, uh, uh, you've probably heard this phrase, white elephants, that is, large stadiums, large buildings, large facilities that are not used much after the event. Uh, And the Olympics themselves have been growing, and, and within IOC circles, they talk about gigantism as a problem. They still talk about it by which they mean the scale of the thing has, has grown. Uh, London, 28 sports, 302 events, 10,500 athletes, 31 venues. And in a way, that's, that's the, the, the most that the Olympics is looking for now. So other sports want to join, but in order to join, other sports have to leave. Um, so the IOC is mindful of this, but they also don't want... Uh, it to grow much beyond that sort of 28, 300 and, 300 and 10,500 kind of model um, because otherwise uh, they're not going to get the pool of candidate cities that they want. 
And this is the other side of it. Uh, you have to think about it in terms of the IOC has been making changes uh, in the last uh, three or four years. They've introduced something called Agenda 2020. It's not to do with nothing to do with Tokyo 2020, but it is to do with actually 40 recommendations and changes, about seven of which relate to the sort of topics we're talking about tonight. And um, uh, th these deal with such things as you know, cutting costs and thinking more environmentally and sustainably about putting on something that some critics, again, counter-narratives, are saying is um, uh, actually unsustainable. Yeah, well, thank you, both of you, for your answers. And